Hey, if you would open with me to a couple of scriptures, but right now, Psalm 26, we 27 is what I'm wanting you to be at. Um, familiar to most of you, but I think important and where we'll be uh, in the Word today. And um, we did things just a bit differently because uh, in getting you guys on simultaneously, it takes just a little bit of time. So we spent it just right from the gate in worship. And uh, that now gives us an opportunity to not uh, miss an important word, which I think stages the teaching of today. And the title, I believe, is Working Out Worship or The Working Out of Worship. So we're still going to be in the life of David. We're going to be exactly where we left off in Second Samuel. Um, great insight for us. Very timely in terms of where we are today uh, in our world, in our nation, this state, other states, the state that we feel that we are in, confused at times in consternation, potentially in conflict, we want to we want to hear from the Lord with regard to what is it that we do in this necessity of working out worship. And so I believe it's going to be a choice word, and I believe it's going to be very encouraging. But it doesn't mean that it won't have tensions with it. Psalm 27, David's heart here, one thing I have desired of the Lord that I will seek. I'm going to repeat that. One thing I have desired of the Lord that will I seek. What? That I may dwell in the house of the Lord. That wasn't a question from him. That was exclamatory. What is it that we need to continue hearing from David's heart with regard to this desire that has been placed on it, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. What a great declaration, not just one day of the week, two days of the week, but all the days of my life, his heart was set on being in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. How can that be? Because when you learn how to dwell with God, on a given day of the week, then you don't want to leave God behind. You invite him to dwell with you in your home, the place that is your vo vocation, the area that you may be on vacation. It doesn't mean less about the house of God. It means that he means so much to you that for your life forever, your desires to dwell with him. And so we want to look at some of those things today that deal even with lessons that were hard for David and that in our times today can be hard on us. It doesn't change what this says, but it does require at times changes on what we do and how we do it, the working out of what God has instilled in us. I was created for God. I was created as a worshiper of God. 
I have a passion for him. It's a passion that needs to be expressed to him with others that also have a love and an exercised faith in God. Oh, this one thing I have desired of the Lord, that I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To do what? To behold, it says, the beauty of the Lord. Well, you can imagine when we look outside and we we have many opportunities to see wonderful sights that God has created, the Lord would say, put your eyes on me then in the house of God. David saw beauty there. I've been in magnificent cathedrals and they are impressive. But without my knowledge of what they were intended for and the person of God whom I am giving my attention to, it's just brick and mortar and marble and glass and candles. Architecture without life. But when I'm embracing and believing that God is there, I can be especially impressed and the beauty. I can also take notice of the faults and the flaws, but most impressed am I in the person of God. To behold the beauty of the Lord, to inquire in his temple. That's where the questions get to be asked and not questioning God, but asking God for direction. There are a lot of people that are questioning God today. That isn't what he would have any of us grasp. But he loves questions that he is freely able to answer from his word. So, I cite 27 because it's just a beautiful, beautiful scripture that I believe is really the heart of David and what he would say in this particular area of scripture was a debacle. Delighting in the Lord, wanting to express his heart for God, but it just turned out wrong in working out worship. So let's flip back, if you would, to Second uh, Samuel. We're going to be in chapter 6 right now, because that's where we've left off. If you're familiar with the manner in which we teach, it's simply plowing through the Word. I learned this from a pastor that I sat under, faithfully dispatching the Word of God week to week, month, year after year. And uh, that was John Corson, and I, I pay tribute in terms of the fact of how faithful he was at doing that. Hundreds, if not thousands, of, of men having uh, been able to give great gratitude to the Lord for his teaching and he being taught by others. But I say that because I just found out about a week ago that that he has turned over uh, the pastor at the pulpit to his son, Ben, who I consider in our Brookings uh, Fellowship as a friend of this church. Good young man, but um, I say that because there's much that I've learned concerning worship from, I think, one who has a heart like David of worship. 
So this today deals with David and the fact that he's coming into his own. He now has, from where we've left off, the heart of God's people knitted with him. That appears to be what is taking place after seven and a half years of being in Hebron. He now has his heart knitted with the rest of Israel, the majority of them coming down to have accepted the terms of peace. And one of the things, too, that I want to cite is that as we look into this, that's really what David is breathing deeply about. Ah, my season of peace, my season of peace. And he knows that peace will only be by the virtue of God and to having a placement of God that gives him accessibility to God. Under Saul, the things of God were carelessly dismissed. Samuel had died. Saul was in pursuit of David. Saul now has died with his son Jonathan and the other son. And, and David again right now has, has been moved away from, if you would, taking his governmental position until a moment ago in the scriptures that we've studied. And a couple of things that I simply want to remind ourselves about. When he had participated in what were called the slaughter of the Amalekites and Saul had suffered defeat under the Philistines, when that had a conclusionary end to it, it indicates very clearly that David had made an inquiry in chapter 2. So we're in chapter 6. He had made an inquiry in chapter 2. What do I do now, Lord? Where do I go? And the Lord specifically told him that he was to go to Hebron. In our last teaching, it was, Lord, what do I do? Where do I go? Hebron, a city of refuge. Lord, what do I do now? I, I've still got an enemy force to contend with. What do I do? And so the Lord gave him counsel on what to do to take on the Philistines that remain to attack him. He's wanting peace for the Lord's sake. He's wanting peace for his people who had been in civil disarray for now something like 17 years. And he just wants peace. Where do I go? Hebron. What do I do? Listen for the rustling in the mulberry trees, the leaves of the mulberry trees also known as the balsam trees. The Spirit of God, listen. Some have suggested that it was a practical means of basically hearing what the enemy was doing. I can buy that. I don't doubt it. But I also can believe there's a greater army that God sends on the march. And because in the unseen world, the Lord may work in the practical realm. David, take your cue from that. 
not from what you've heard the enemy and their chants, their threats, their armor clank clanking, swords blindingly shining. You listen intently to that critical, practical evidence that my army is on the march. And when you hear it, you go. So I like what that represents and believe that that's true. Is it not God who dispenses his angels as the wind and his ministers as a flame of fire? And we looked at that on Thursday too. I like what all of that represents. Okay, so Rich, what is, the, what is this working out of worship? Well, this is the motivation of what begins chapter 6. Here it starts. Again, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000. He's got a pretty big army. How did he get them? God gave him those men. God gives men, men who serve him in ministry. God has given men, two men, in leadership to serve him in ministry. Okay, how does this relate to David? Because David has responsibility in terms of how to manage these men given to him by God for the purpose of ministry, pulling it all together, bringing people that have been divided for years to the center of God's will, to the place where God's heart was. Where's that place? Well, we already know that this place is going to be where David has, has had his affection set. Zion, present-day Jerusalem. He did it by a means of strategy, a challenge to somebody. Find a way in through that water port and you'll be my captain. You'll get to wear big britches. You'll get to validate who you are and my spiritual necessity and military requirements. And so we know who that was. But the point is, is that David's heart was set on destination right now for God. That he might determine according to Psalm 27, the worship of the Lord within proximity as opposed to distance. David wants proximity to God. What is it that we're finding we don't have? Proximity. How so? Churches are closed. Okay, how long is that going to be? We don't know. What else do we know? We're practicing social distancing. So we want proximity with God, but we have the protocols of social distancing. Does that work? I have opinions, but I'm more concerned about what God says. If he says to draw near, then I know that that means personally for me, there should be nothing that separates me from God. If I'm of the belief that God's people have the Spirit of God in them, and it's a means by which I draw near to God by being with them, then social distancing doesn't exactly really work for me. 
doesn't work for me. I've just taught through almost all of Galatians, and Galatians is about liberty and freedom. In Romans, it's pointing to the necessity of the law to drive me to the desire and need of grace. So when I'm saturated in all of these principles, it is difficult for me to understand certain protocols that are for my protection when, like David, I have a heart of worship and to be with those who worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. I'm in a predicament in the pandemic. What do I do? So my belief is at least I have to start with myself. I've been given a leadership position, which means there's a responsibility from me. But I'm also able to say, no offense intended by any who would take it, is that you have a God who's my God, and he directs you on what he wants you to do. If I'm one who honors God like you honor God, and I'm esteeming you better than myself, and you're esteeming me better than myself or yourself, <laughs> then it should work out. We can have differences of opinion politically. Not two, but we can. But ultimately, we should have no differences of opinion about how we ought to please God, and that's on the merit of who he is in our life according to the word. Let me cite this just because I know you may say, oh, he's not even into six right now. He won't finish before one o'clock. Yes, I will. God is the one that I go to. Working out worship means I have to take it to the beginning or to the point of origin. It's about God. And when I go to the point of origin, as I've taught in Romans on 13, I'm literally citing lawfulness or precedence the anchoring of what it is I do and how I'm to worship God and how I'm to lead God's people hinges on taking people back as I also need to go back and find out where God positions himself. And God says that in the beginning, I created the heavens and the earth. In that same book, not too far from that place, in which he declares who he is, he declares that he's the author of life. When I want to understand about life, I go to God. He declares that he's the author of marriage. When I want to understand about marriage, I go to God. From that, we know that he is the author of, if you would, all life. And so when I want to understand life that has come from the marriage that he has ordained in which I went to him, I also go to God concerning parenting. As the book unfolds, he ordained government. It means I need to go to God concerning government. The question is, is my government going to God in how it is governing God's people? When I want to know what God wants his people to know, and that means education, I go to God. I go to God when I want to understand the principles and the protocols of worshiping him, I go to God. When my mind is plagued 
and my body is riddled with plague, I go to God, and he may send me to a doctor. But if he doesn't, he says, I am the great physician. I have healed thousands. Have you sought me? So in any area, every facet of life, if I go to God because my heart is to worship God, my desire is to be in proximity with the Lord, then it means he's going to be faithful to me. And it may be something that expresses itself differently in convictions that another person may have, but it ought never conflict that we are honoring God, even though it may have a difference of opinion, because we're all drawing near to God. God is using all of us in the means and manner by which he has touched our heart. What if it had been somebody else but David with a heart like David, but he wanted to build his house in Bethlehem? That, of course, didn't happen. But we do know this, that as David established his heart in Jerusalem, that one would go to Bethlehem. And that was the very person that he established Jerusalem for. So in one sense, he lived out his childhood dreams by bringing the vision of God to Bethlehem, his home, and what was the birthplace of Jesus who would come to his place proper in Jerusalem that David had established because his heart beat for an elevated area that would bring glory to God. David's working out worship is what I'm saying right now. And so in this working out of worship, David arose, went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God. From the time of Saul, the ark was at a distance from the people. The ministry kind of had failed under Saul significantly, and certainly after Samuel passed away. So David's heart has been touched because the vacancy of it has not been satisfied. He had a priest and a prophet with him that had joined him, been traveling with him for all these years. We know that David penned great psalms in this time and season. Didn't stop David from being on his knees. Didn't stop David from writing songs, praying with his people, seeing great visions from God. But David wanted to cleave to the Lord in a place that was designated as a worship center. That's why you're seeing the provocation of people who are believers. Because like David, they're wandering. It doesn't mean that they've forgotten prayer. It doesn't mean that they've transgressed the word of God. It doesn't mean that they care less about God. If anything, it has promoted in them a thirst and hunger for more of God. Because when you're put in the wilderness, when you're on a campaign of running, 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 by fear, 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 hiding out because of what's going to get you, you all of a sudden crave for a hiding place of who can fill you and who can save you. And who can satisfy you? That's what you're seeing. Response to God, but no solution yet to get back to him with proximity. Only just a means 
something you hear, something you can see, but you can't touch. You can't touch God right now. He's become an untouchable. So the things are in play right now. They set, notice this. The ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. So I can tell you right now, as probably many of you can surmise, when was that ever ordained to bring the ark, which was a figurative symbol of God's presence, to be brought in that way. It was a new way. It wasn't the right way. It wasn't what God had assigned the priesthood to do, written by Moses in Numbers, I believe chapters 1 through 4, somewhere in there, on how to transfer for the symbolic presence of God within the Ark of the Covenant and as a result of simply trying to get worship going and trying to get into God and God to get back to his people, there's an error that's being made. And there will be errors made today in people trying to reconnect with God and bringing him in. Because the doors have been boarded up. And what's the answer? It's to do it the right way. But I will tell you, it's always asking God how he wants it done. And the way he may want it done in Southern California or the way he may want it done in Virginia or Tennessee or any other states in Texas or Oregon, it's God's way, the work of worship. Because God knows how to express his will in what the hearts of the people are willing to do. And it can be viewed critically on both sides. But we know this. David did not do it the right way. He's not even yet seen right now in this particular part of getting the ark on the cart. We're not even really told who suggested it? We have a priest. His name was cited, Abinadab. His sons, they're cited. They're part of the ministry team. I mean, you would think that those would have been steeply into the protocols of transferring the ark. And we're going to find out how David ultimately found out how to do that. What we see here is the consequence of not doing it the right way. They brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill accompanying the ark of God, and Ohio went before the ark. Then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord, so worship starting, and all kinds of instruments, of fir wood, on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on citrums, and on cymbals. And when they came to... Um, Nechosen's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. So worship's going on, but the means by which transferring that 
that arc on that cart stops everything. And the stopping of it is because God breaks out in a judgment upon a man who's only trying to keep it from toppling. The fact of the matter is it wouldn't have had to have toppled had it been put in order the right way, the working out of worship done the right way. And that's the tension. How how do we, what? I mean, it seems like that's very contemporary. Oxen, wow, the strength, the strength of an animal harnessed for the purposes of God, the strength of the body purposed for the movement of the church. Well, it just depends on what God has said about movements of any kind. And if revival breaks out, it's usually because God has indeed endorsed a particular way in which the spirit will move. But if all of a sudden we say the spirit will move in this manner, in that place only, but not in another based on the way they're doing it, I would say we're putting ourselves in the position of the Holy Spirit. We've got to do what God says honors him in the doing of it. And God can be as much of a compliment towards governance as he can be a radical in standing up to governance. But it doesn't change who he is, nor the, expe nor the expectation of how we are to be. We are to be those who, in obeying God, are assertively peaceful. But it doesn't mean we're to be passively assertive, meaning that strength in just being passive, doing nothing. That doesn't achieve anything except misreading us for what we will do for God, even if it does mean our life. And this is not speaking of civil disobedience whatsoever. It's speaking of obeying God while being peacemakers. Paul was one that, as we've studied in Galatians, as well in Romans, was both an ambassador of the Lord, and he was a statesman for the Lord. In both of those capacities, he was most excellent. He really was, but he was also a mediator. He took the tensions that existed on both sides of the cross, and he was able to make peace, brokering truth. And so we're called to be ambassadors. We're called to be statesmen. That means speaking truth. And we're called to be mediators, drawing two differences of opinion concerning what we are to do, both with God and with the government in times right now that conflict with our hearts to be worshipers. We have to understand that that tension is not going to go away, but the one that ultimately resolves the effectiveness of that tension is God. And he's not intending for there to be unintended consequences. But he is one that certainly can stop from anything other to go forward that is not of his will. And that may to some say a consequence. There are many things even related to the pandemic, which can be cited as a work of God allowed by him 
for the willfulness of a people that do not honor him. I absolutely believe that is possibly true. But I know if that is the case, the people of God cry out to him for mercy. And the people that do not know God, do you know what it's a provocation for? My life's going down the tubes. I'm losing everything. And I have fear I'm going to die. And I've heard that if I die and I haven't made a choice for God, which somehow in the back of my mind and in the letters that I'm rereading from my parents, from my grandfather, and that Bible that I've never picked up, it tells me that there's a decision I need to make and I haven't made it. And the world's falling apart and my world is unraveling and I have nothing. And if I die, I will certainly have a judgment. Then what purpose then is the church for if it's shuttered under the premise of what? A disease? There's a greater disease than the coronavirus. It's basically called sin. And actually sin is what expresses itself in disease, in iniquity, in transgression, in violation of others, and most significantly in violation of the person of God. I need to get back to God. The people need to get back to God. How do we do it properly? The consequence has happened right now because in the reaching out of this, the anger in verse 7 of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah and God struck him there for his error and he died there by the ark of God. And notice this, David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah and he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. David, verse 9, was afraid of the Lord that day and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? Great question. How can the symbol of worshiping God come to me? How can it come to me? The reason that that's good is because where we're at right now is we're learning. How can the experience and presence of God come to me when I'm in isolation? Well, I'll tell you how God made it happen. Because all of a sudden he turned churches that had no clue about how to record services we all of a sudden were given one week to learn how to do it. And we've done it faithfully. The question is, are you, whomever may be listening, are you faithful in that God has come to you to listen to the voice of God at you? Are you calling yourself the voice of God? I'm reading the word of God, meaning that he can speak to me and through me if he chooses to. My question is, for those of you tuned in, to whomever, is it one who holds the word of God, who has the spirit of God, who's in a position in serving God, representing right now a vast array of ministers of God? God's come to you. Have you received God into your homes faithfully? If not, then I would say to you, not as a work to impress God. But as a realization, man, there are things that I've missed concerning the voice of God. I wonder if that church that's broadcasting now archives that stuff for me later. And I would say to you, it's archived. For David, 
the word of the Lord and how he was to bring the presence of God to himself was archived in numbers. And all he had to do was consult Abinadab. Uh, where? Where is it that we're missing here? Something doesn't feel right about this. Who proposed this parade with the cart and the ox? Very impressive, but um, it ju- I don't recall ever reading or hearing about this. Uh, so, guys, though my heart, you're jumping on it, and you want to exercise you know, joy in making it happen for me, I'm, I'm not quite sure that I have a piece about this. It's, it's kind of in conflict right now. And David might have at this moment been frustrated with the fact that he let something, if you would, get ahead. In this case, he let the ox get ahead of the cart, (laughs) but he let that cart do a job it wasn't assigned to do. And we find out in another passage of Scripture, another book, where he came to terms with his error. Working out worship requires coming to the God who is to be worshipped at the beginning point of how he defines himself to be and the expectation of what we are to seek from him. There are many who honorably desire to worship God. And God says in this time, I'm coming to you. I'm coming to a neighborhood near you. I'm coming to your home. And the question would be, if we're faithful in God coming into our homes via the mechanism of media, then do we now have a stirring that will say in faithfulness, when the doors of that church open, I am there in that spot. And then if we find ourselves in that spot, does God have a protocol on how we are to stand before him, sit before him, And you know what I'm getting at. Because right now we're being told how many can worship and the methodology by which we worship. The question is, has God given that? Has God given that to the believer? Or is it simply a manner in which I can satisfy a component of my society that I'm to be obedient to but who is meddling in the manner in which scriptures do not justify. And it's creating what? Tension. How do you alleviate tension? You ask God to give you peace on the manner and means by which you do what God has said to do. Well, if, if we do it wrong and the government sees it, then uh, we could be shuttered forever. No, no, I don't believe forever. Your work may be, my work may be, but it's not forever. Because God presides over governance, and I'm confident that God eventually topples and changes governance. And he puts people in place that are going to honor him. And you know the tension. How can one adjudicate, null and void, doors are open, launch out, church, Seven hours later, that judge orders null and void, stay. (laughs) How? How can we do that? I, I think I can tell you. Some people are consulting in God and the manner and means by which 
the people of God, the nation that is still, in my opinion, under God, believe in the documents that were written by spiritual men who honored the Lord. And that's how it happens, even for the sake of something seemingly that has a special protocol in order to stop it. I realize the tensions, but you know, I've never lived through per se the hardships of polio and rubella. I had the mumps that actually broke out measles and chickenpox. I remember when all of those broke out and vaccines eventually became available, but I know this, those diseases claimed lives and the weak were tended and the ones who succumbed were buried and the ones who were vital continued to carry on. And we have to ask ourselves, is it still that or have all things changed with regard to what we do and hardships and desires to have worship? Do you know that worship has an important place in hardships? Therefore, if you suspend worship in hardship, you create a sinking ship. Unnecessarily. What are we to do? We do what David had to do. He consulted his heart, actually chastened it. He had a problem in attitude with God for a moment till he realized he was wrong. And by the way, there will be many that come away from this saying, I was wrong. There will be many that right now say, I'm right. But it's ultimately those who are centered on God's will that can say, let's not make much more of this except to say, shall we do well then with God? Shall we get the worship of God right now centered on the person of God, Jesus Christ? And whether it's in home for a season or whether God says the stirring of the balsam leaves, go. We obey God. And when we obey God in faith and the reservation isn't fear and there's no doubt about what God has said to do, and we do it as ambassadors and as statesmen, and we do it as those who are also mediators, who can bring two differing groups together for one purpose of strength, no longer tearing at one another for weakness, then we say, let God be God and let all men be liars. Every man has to come to the determined evaluation that either God governs us and we honor him or he doesn't and we honor anything. David said, how can I bring God to me? To me, God says, okay, in this season, this is what we're going to do. Media. In one week, I'm going to train every church to blast my message over media. No excuses about not being heard. No excuses about not going to church. Oh, there's an excuse over there. What, was the signal a little bit fuzzy? What, what was the deal? Four-inch screen, too small for you? What, don't like the living room configuration? See, there will be those who can say, yeah, but it wasn't the way that I want it. But all God's concerned about is that you want him. Why is he concerned about the it when what he's saying is, I want you to want me. If you want me, I'll come to you. 
But then David's not simply satisfied that. He wants to bring the experience of God to him, to the people. And that is the other tension. How do we bring not only God to us faithfully, but to release ourselves so that the benefit of the experience as people of God is enjoyed in the place of God. Jerusalem is going to be the place of God. How does David do it? So he has to settle right now with the consequence of not doing it the right way. Sometimes we're going to have to settle with the consequence of not doing it the right way. But there's always time for adjustment. Consult God. Consult God. We have great men of God who, having consulted God, are making a decision about the house of God this next week. What's our decision? I am consulting God. What has he said? I think he said a lot of things to me. How do you know what we're to do? Well, you obey God. And if all you get is a last-minute notice saying, the wind is blowing through the balsam trees, the mulberries, they're shaking. Surge, David, that's your time. The battle is mine, and you're going to see it. Next week is a very special time. Memorial Day. <laughs> oh, this is Memorial Day. <laughs> well, for America, it's Memorial Week. But <laughs> I was corrected. See, I can stand corrected. I can receive. But next week on Sunday is Pentecost Day. And wouldn't it be wonderful if God says, I'm in harmony with that. That's awesome. Some of you churches are going to open up and you're going to be misunderstood. But because you've consulted my word, it's going to be awesome for the 50 or the 10 or the 25 or 60. Or for some of you guys that actually just said, the doors are open. Galatians says liberty and freedom. You can stand together if you stand each other. Great. Because God may say, you're clean. As soon as you come through that door, you are clean. See, I don't know what the Lord is telling people in their hearts to do. But if I do not let God be God over the hearts of those whom he rules, then I am a liar. And people may be on their you know, edge of their chairs. What's Rich going to do? Well, to the men that I met with, we agreed that we would be broadcasting from the church. That was the best we could do. Before all of a sudden we hear this executive voicing from an adjudicator says, null and void, churches are open. All of a sudden, woohoo, go. All of a sudden, no, not so fast. <laughs> not so fast. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Does that make God's word null and void? No. There's some churches that are going to pass out napkins over your face and blue gloves, and it's going to look like an awesome surgical team. And you guys are going to go in there and go, wow, we look like first responders. Let's pray for those guys. Now we know what it's like when they're operating on our needs. They have to wear these things all day. My goodness. 
Let's pray for the nurses and the doctors that they're anointed right now to find this vaccine because there will be some churches and all of a sudden they're going to face off with each other and they're going to go, we're doctors today. Wait, we're worshipers. We're worshiping doctors. Let's pray that doctors know that as worshipers, we're praying for them. Some may go in there with their Hawaiian shirts on and sandals and all of a sudden it's, wow, a liberated church in the face of adversity and protocols. Who are they? They must be studying Galatians. They must be showing others that are in bondage right now that there's liberty and freedom in Christ. They're the ones that are standing up for another principle. Where others are standing up to intercede for those who are vocationally putting their lives on the lines, these guys are standing up for liberty and grace and freedom. Awesome! But they're going to jail afterwards. Awesome! <laughs> They're giving their lives up as a living sacrifice for God in what he directed them to do in a statement that he allowed them to make and the freedom that they had. But there's others that are just, they're lawful, six feet apart. They're not even singing so they don't spread a germ. Great. They're honoring right now a particular protocol that they feel in their heart they're to honor. And so they look very much like Quakers. Very astute. Don't touch me. I won't touch you but we are touching God. Don't crowd me out. Give me room and my silence. And that may be the statement that God wants to make as well. I can respect the ordinance of governance, but remember, I am the supreme governor. I am truly the sovereign over the universe. And if I choose to express obedience in that way through a body, a hundred, a thousand, and if I choose to express liberty and freedom in another body, I am sovereign. That's me. If I choose to express vocational alliance, sympathy and empathy towards those who literally have been on the front lines by making a congregation breathe in and out through a worship mask, and to wear gloves that will make their hands sweat and even awkwardly handle the elements of communion, that is my sovereign right and privilege. If I gather a church together and I decide to put them in three-piece suits and formal dresses to show that there is also a formality in the means by which I am worshipped and I choose to make them stand without chairs, but it's social distancing in which there's not conflict. I am sovereign over them. And they may be in that regard as they're filmed, showing that I also stand with those in three-piece suits and formal attire in Washington, the means and the method by which I choose to govern, and that's with them obeying me. as their supreme, honoring the decisions that they make by the word of God that they are to hold. So David in verse 10 would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David, but David took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And it says the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. Isn't that 
interesting. We've been about three months right now in quarantine. What do we do? We can't do anything. We waited out. We have three months. Lord, what do we do now? Consultation, consultation. What do we do now? David is observing that in this time that it's in Obed-Edom, it's being blessed. For you and your communities that have churches right now where they rest and perhaps inactive, for you that are landlords over churches, you need to understand God's willing to bless you for your faith just by obliging where it rests. One of the best investments that anybody could ever make is in the work of God where it stands and its purpose, what it's for, and to whom is being worshipped. And that's to be so noted for those that have made great investments. You know, I personally believe that where our church is at, in this town where any church is at, it's a blessing for that block, for that community, just by the ground that is right now being used to station it. But David realizes that that place is getting blessed. And in three months, it stirs his heart to say, let's do it then. And let's do it the right way. And so, if you will, we go to First Chronicles as we close on this. And we see this. The problem was that David consulted with the captains of the thousands. So it's First Chronicles chapter 13. First Chronicles chapter 13. It gives us the explanation of what happened in David's error. Consulting with the captains of the thousands and hundreds and with every leader, David said to all the assembly of Israel, if it seems good to you, and if it is of the Lord our God, let us send out to our brethren everywhere who are left in the land of Israel, and with them to the priests and Levites who are in their cities and their common lands, that they may gather together to us, and let us bring the ark of our God back to us, for we have not inquired at it since the days of Saul. Meaning that they haven't had an opportunity of corporate worship since the days of Saul. They're hungry for it. We're hungry after three months for corporate worship before God. That's his hunger. But here's the deal. All of the assembly said that they would do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. David gathered, in verse 5, all Israel together from Shirhor, Egypt, or from Shihor, Egypt, to as far as the entrance of Hamath, to bring the ark of God from Kirjath, Jerem, and David and all Israel went up to Bela, to Kirath-Jerim, which belongs to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, the Lord, who dwells between the cherub and his name is where his name is proclaimed. And notice this in verse 7, coming back to where we left off. So they carried the ark of God on a new cart. What happened is that David asked for the approval of men to worship. I want to worship God. Can I get your approval on that? Can I get an amen? Amen. Let's worship God. All right. Let's go get him. He asked for the approval of God as opposed to just saying, it's approved. I'm God. The worship of me is approved. I'm God. Let's do it the right way. What's the right way? We've already talked about that. You ask God what the right way is. 
If there's a pastor that says, the way that God has touched my heart with another community of pastors, that we are one and like-minded on this, this is the way that we are to worship God in this manner on this day. Might be the only day, but this is the word of the Lord. This is the stirring of the leaves in the mulberry trees. He said to march on these orders when we hear the Spirit of God. And so we're going to do it this way, in this manner. And we're going to do it in faith. And we're not going to do it in fear. And guess what? If it's not for you, then the God who we teach, whom you've read about, the spirit that resides in you, it's not for you on that day. Don't make what God has said in your heart is not for you on that day. A suspension of what God has said is to be done on that day with us. Give us liberty. For surely we have died. And that means to our own ways. And to foreign ways. We want to honor God, Yahweh. His way. And so verse or chapter 15, flipping over, it tells us that David then did things the right way. And verse 11 of chapter 15 informs us, David called for Zadok and Abiathar the priests and for the Levites, for Uriel, for Isaiah, for Joel, for Shemei, for Leiel and Abinadab. And he said to them, You are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites. Sanctify yourselves, you and your brethren, that you may bring up the ark of the Lord of God to the place I have prepared. Notice this, that you guys bring it up. Because he went back and referred and was corrected in the Lord by the word of God. And so he knew that the ark could only be transferred by a calling out of those who were in charge of it to be sanctified, consecrating themselves for this holy mission. And it's a holy mission to come into the house of God. We asked it. We ask of the Lord ourselves, Lord, may we be consecrated and sanctified in prayer and by the anointing of the Holy Spirit, that as we come back into the house of the Lord, you, Lord, are receiving glory. We're not being anything less than who we are to be, and we're not trying to draw attention to anything other than you and what you've asked us to do as ambassadors, right? As statesmen, yes, as those who can be negotiators. We can mediate between the tensions. We can give liberty and grace as it is afforded, and we can also exercise our liberty and freedom as we have the right to do. Making a statement. And then in verse 13, he says, Because you did not do it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not consult him about the proper order. That sounds like, a, hey, you guys didn't do it right the first time. <laughs> That's really not what he's saying. He's saying, I'm in, I'm in this with you guys. Uh, we, we messed up on this. You were to be a part of it the first time. Not the cart, not the oxen. Didn't work, and we had to barbecue the oxen for a sacrifice to get in good graces again with God. So we lost everything. The wood for the cart was probably used for the fire, for the oxen, everything got messed up. Lost one man, good man. So you guys, together with me, we blew it. 
Now we've got it right. Therefore, we move in righteousness. And so the leaders have been spoken to, the Levites appointed. And then notice this in verse 27. It's really extraordinary, but we already know that there's basically a beautiful act of worship in the parading, literally, of the ark coming back into the city of David. And um, it says this, David, verse 17, or 27, was clothed with a robe of fine linen, and as were all the Levites who bore the ark, the singers and the Chenaniah, the music master with the singers, David also wore a linen ephod. You know, very often it's misread, and we'll find that when, when Michael, his uh, wife, one of his wives, challenges him on his mode and method of worship. Uh, the implication is that he's before the Lord um, in what we would call exposing himself, and it's not true. Um, there have been takes on this, you know, that David basically is out of attire. It's so, it shows us that he's in attire and he's dancing before the Lord. And there's a difference between carnal dancing and spiritual dancing. There's a difference truly between, if you would, the dancing in nightclubs and, if you would, ballroom dancing with couples. There's a difference. And David is in the unique difference of worshiping God, leading the procession, singers employed, prayers being offered, everything being done right because God is a God of correctness, doing things decently and in order. And David's in order. He's wearing a robe. He's not wearing a diaper. He's wearing on top of that robe an ephod, which means it is showing that he's a part of the worship team. He's not simply a king. When he dons that ephod, he's saying literally, I'm a minister right now. I know I'm your king, but I'm stepping down from that position to be a worshiper of God with you, and I will lead this procession. I will lead this procession in the dance. What does the dance represent? Freedom and liberty before God. It doesn't mean do your own thing. It means that in worshiping God, you have liberty and freedom with the people you are with who also are worshiping God to be free. To be free. It's what our heart yearns for and will not be satisfied any other way. How can I bring God to me? I'm here right now. I'm here. Oh, Lord, how can I bring you with me? How can I then make more available what is in my heart to have of you to others who don't know you, but who need to have a place bigger than a living room, bigger than a four-inch camera, bigger than that guy that's talking to me? How, Lord? Church, that's a great idea. Why? Because back in those days... God was establishing a beautiful place of fellowship that we know was the garden. And though man's decisions got in the way back then, as man's decisions can get in the way back now, the church was manifested. And the church was on fire for God. And the church was 120 strong in Acts chapter 1. And from it, it grew to 3,000. If you're a part of a big church, God bless you. I loved big churches. I'm a part of a smaller work. God bless the work in smaller works. 
the most important thing is working out worship. How does worship work out in your life in a time in which there's tensions? Because like David on this chapter, I say, I'm going to consult the word and I'm going to listen to the spirit and I will obey. If there's a conflict in government, it is not because I am intending to conflict with them. I am an ambassador. I am a statesman. I am a mediator. I can do that. I've shared this before. My father was a great mediator in the politics of education, teaching. And year after year after year, Bill, Bill, come on, would you be president? Would you, would you just oversee this? You're so good at taking the tensions away from the table talks. You settle things remarkably. And he could. He was. He was great. We can too. We can be those who assertively are peaceful. And we do not have to passively give up anything with regard to exalting God. And so we pray for the day. And the means by which we, who have proximity with God being with us now, can bring him back to a place he has always been, but wants others to come into his presence at. It can be both. It's centered on the cross. It is focused on the person of Jesus Christ. It is dependent upon the word of God. It necessitates the spirit of God coming upon us. Letting everyone honor God in spite of what may be differences of opinion about how to do it, where to do it, and when to do it. He is supreme over all the earth. Supreme. And if he's supremely happy with you in your living room on a four-inch screen, he has reigned supreme in your heart. If he is supreme in telling you to wear a face mask and blue gloves and go to church, he has reigned supreme in your heart and you are welcome. If he tells you to go into church in scuba gear with your oxygen tank turned on, he reigns supreme in showing that even an environmentalist can come in and give him honor and praise and glory. Whatever it may be, God reigns supreme.